Uh, Nasser, come up here, brother, if you would. So encouraged that uh, Nasser and I talked about a month ago, said it's just been a while since he's been here to teach. Absolutely love it when he comes. Um, I don't say this lightly, but I consider Nasser to be a hero of the faith that's living ridiculous. today. And I'm honored to oh, have you on here. On the record, I think that's ridiculous. That is what a hero of the faith would say. So see, gotcha. Oh. Um, but Nasser just has, has truly put his life on the line for the Lord. Uh, he's leading um, ministries all over the place, but in the Middle East specifically. Um, and I just love it when he teaches us. And so I just, I, f- I feel the honor of the Lord to have him here. I just want you to share with me as I pray over him and bless him uh, as he teaches us through the Passover. So Lord, I thank you for this sweet brother. Uh, thank you for Nasser, Lord. Thank you for Daisy. Thank you for their family. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to them in drawing them out of darkness, Lord and elevating them, bring them to a higher place where they could teach others your ways and your heart and your love. I thank you for the Holy Scriptures that you've given our brother such insight into. And I pray for any distractions to be lifted off right now in Jesus' name from the hearers. Open our ears that we might hear and just bless this brother as he teaches. In the name of Jesus, amen. I mean, I mean. Hi, everybody. I'm Nasser. It's been too long. I've missed you guys. I was telling Jonathan, I think it's been like a year at least since I've been here with you guys in El Dorado, and that's just way, way, way too long. Um, And I just, I don't believe in coincidences, and it's just interesting to me that it would be this night of all nights especially with like the transition from Saturday night to Sunday morning you guys are about to do, that it would be this night that I would be invited to speak. And if not for all of these overwhelming you know, coincidences, I don't know that I would have the courage to share what I'm going to share tonight, just because it's just like, uh, who am I? Who am I to talk about this stuff? Because it's so amazing. It's too amazing. So um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start with reading a little bit from Exodus chapter 12. And I'm just going to read. I'm going to try to restrain myself from interjecting too much commentary. It's very difficult for me. I'm just going to try to read as much as I can, and then we're going to talk about the craziness of what we find in Exodus chapter 12. So it says... um, the Lord, or, you know, whenever you see the Lord, by the way, all caps in your English Bibles, that's the God's name, um, Yahweh, which has been a big deal in this story. <laughs> this is the story where he reveals that name. Um, and for the purpose of, of finally helping the world to understand who he is. Again, sorry, I'm trying to stop, not do too much commentary. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month which was the month of Nisan, shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That's this month, by the way, in the Jewish calendar. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, by the way, which is today. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in just about an hour or so from now. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, that is tonight, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover, or Pesach in Hebrew. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And it goes on and gives instructions for the following week. For a whole week, they, they will only eat matzah. It's the feast of matzah. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, if you come across this, this little section of Scripture um, as you're re actually reading the story of the Exodus, it's like really jarring because we've just had this exciting, like, manifested spiritual battle that's been going on for 11 chapters straight almost between the gods of Egypt, and the Lord, the God of Israel. And it's been exciting, and there's been all these plagues and all these things going on, and like, I don't think any, any Hollywood movie has ever done justice to the level of like special effects that are going on in the story. And then suddenly, when we get this, you know, dire warning, like this is your last chance, all your firstborn are going to die, and you're like turning the page, like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? Then everything stops, the action stops, and we get these very detailed instructions on how to have a Passover meal, and what a Passover meal is. And... When the, the author of this story is the most brilliant storyteller in the universe. And so if he's going to slow down the action, slow down the narrative, and sort of pause 
and do this to the story, interrupt the story in this way. It's for a reason. It's because we're at a very important part of the story that the author wants us to pause and reflect what kind of a story is this? And, you know, like all, all great stories, pull the reader, pull the listener, pull the viewer, right, into the action, into the story. You identify maybe with certain characters or certain themes that are happening in the story. And so this is a great place for the person who's hearing this story to pause and reflect, who am I in this story? If I was alive 3,000 years ago in Egypt, what, what's, what side would I find myself on on this night? On this night, actually, literally this night. Where, where would I be? What would, what would be going through my heart and mind? What, what decisions would I be making? And it's, Exodus is one of those stories, it's like, it's like the story of the Torah. You know, even the psalm that Jonathan read, like so much of the rest of Scripture is pointing back to this story and using imagery, using the, the pictures, the themes of the Exodus story to keep retelling, which is essentially the one story that the Bible just speaks over and over and over and over again. And, and that's great when we've underlined something so much and like we know it's important, but the, the danger for us sometimes is when we become overly accustomed to a story, we've heard it so many times, we actually, like it starts to become almost fuzzy and we lose some of the details and we forget where some of the, the edges lie in these pictures that are being painted for us and this cosmic battle that took place in Egypt. And, you know, every time I, I reread the Exodus story, I, I personally, I, I'm constantly going, ah, oh, I never noticed that was there the whole time. I never noticed that before. How is it that I didn't remember that? That seems so important. And so if you haven't read Exodus in a while um, and watching The Prince of Egypt or, you know, The Ten Commandments or any of those movies, that doesn't count because there's so many things for real. And I'll tell you, and the reason why is because there's weird stuff that you'll notice when you read the text that you won't see in the Hollywood productions because they think it's weird and they're like, they don't understand why it's there. They can't explain it. And so they just skip over it. But those are the very things that we can't skip over. Those are the very things that, that should disturb us and cause us to, to dig deep and wrestle with the text and have conversations, open conversations with the Lord about what's going on here? What is that? Because that's where the treasures are. The treasures are where, are the places in the text where we stumble. It's, it's almost like God put a little, little pointy part there just so that we would say, hey, what was that I just tripped over? And then we go back and look and see what it is. Something as I've been going through Exodus again this year was like realizing for the first time how crazy it is that there's 10 plagues. How many, if God is all-powerful, almighty, omniscient, like how many plagues should it take to get the job done? Like one, right? You think like one sign or one thing. Like why do we even need to bother with plagues? Why, why does it seem, like just start thinking about all the things in the Exodus story that don't really make any sense at first. Like why does God care whether Pharaoh says yes or not? Why does he want to get the agreement of this pagan king 
in order to let his people go? Why can't he just let them go? Is God not able to just like put a, like a force field around his people and then just like escort them out of the land? Well, when you read the story, actually he can do that. And that's pretty much what he does later on in the story. But why doesn't he do that to begin with? You know, one of the plagues is darkness, and it's not even like a normal darkness. It's some kind of spiritual darkness where the Egyptians can't see, no matter how big of a fire they light or how big their lamp is, because physical light can't penetrate spiritual darkness. And yet the Israelites are able to just do their own thing in Egypt, and they can see just fine. So why didn't they use that moment to just leave Egypt while none of the Egyptians can see them to stop them, right? And it's three days of darkness. I guess plenty of time to grab your stuff and grab your kids and and get out. But that doesn't seem to be what God is, is trying to do, is just get them out as quickly or as efficiently as possible. There's something else going on in this story. And as I've, I read it again and really paid attention to the things that God says and the things that he doesn't say in this story and in the, the dialogue that's happening often through Moses between Yahweh and, and the Pharaoh of Egypt, it's really clear, and this is, was mind-blowing to me. Maybe it's not to some of you, but it blew my mind. This is a story about God pursuing the heart of Pharaoh. And I was like, what? How did I never see that before? But look and pay attention to how concerned God is with Pharaoh's heart and, and making, wanting, desperately wanting Pharaoh to understand who he is. That it's not just that, oh, the Hebrews happen, actually they have their own God and he's bigger and stronger than the gods of Egypt. Like, that's not the point at all. Like, what, what God is trying to communicate to Pharaoh and through Pharaoh to all of Egypt is that the gods they've been serving for generations are a lie. They're a deception. They're a road to death. And he wants Egypt to know that he's life, that he's the only true God, that there's no other There's not even like a minor competitor. Like he is the supreme one. He is the creator. That he is beyond the boundaries and the scope of time and space. And so much of when you look with those eyes and you read through the various plagues, it's really clear that that's what God is trying to communicate to Pharaoh. And it's clear that that Pharaoh is wrestling with it along the way, trying to to look for that. And if you ever wonder, why is it that Pharaoh doesn't seem to be super impressed by most of these plagues. Have you ever noticed that? Like, he's not, like, the first time that like, they turned the Nile into blood, like, why isn't he like, okay, I'm done, right? And so he's like, hmm, can our guys do that? They can't? Okay, I'm not impressed. And then when, you know, frogs, right? He's like, yeah, our guys can do frogs. And it's almost as if, Moses understands what's going on here and that the Pharaoh isn't impressed with power. He has power. The gods he serves are powers. Power doesn't impress him. He wants to know, but does your God have precision? Does he have control? 
Because the gods of the pagan worldview, they're all in battle with one another. One day the sun god's winning and we have a nice sunny day like today. Another day the rain god is winning and so we have floods, right? And you just never know from day to day what's going to happen because the gods are always fighting one another and there's, it's, it's chaos. But if your god can say something and, then, and, and have precise timing of when this thing will happen, that says your God is in control and that there doesn't seem to be any other gods that can stop him or interfere with him. And that's why when, God, when Moses says to Pharaoh, hey, when would you like the frogs to stop? Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And he doesn't say, yesterday. <laughs> Because the frogs were a problem. He says tomorrow, because Pharaoh wants to test, okay, your God's powerful, but can he really control when the frogs go away? And you, you read the story, and there's all kinds of elements of this all throughout each of the plagues. And, and along the way, you see this weird dance where, uh, you know, the Pharaoh either hardens his heart or strengthens his heart. And unfortunately, a lot of our English translations don't distinguish between those two things, but they're two different words in the Hebrew. And the, the one, the strengthening of the heart has to do with, with taking courage. And you'll see that God at certain points in the story will strengthen Pharaoh's heart. Why does he do that? I'll get to that in a moment. And the other parts, there's a lot of, of the Pharaoh hardening his heart or stubborning his heart. And that's just, that's not about courage, it's about just blind stubbornness. I'm going to do what I want. I don't care about the consequences. It's my way, and I'm going to die doing it my way. And Pharaoh does a lot of that also to himself. And it's clear from the very beginning that God is not just wanting to set his people free. Because he could have done that in snap of the fingers. He could just sent angels in and scooped his people out and carried them into the promised land. But it's clear God actually cares about Egypt, which in that moment is a vile pagan empire, has all the economic power, all the military power, everything pagan, abusing minority foreign groups in their midst, unrepentantly and might makes right and all of that. And God cares about them. God understands that what they do, they do in ignorance. They don't know him, and they don't know his ways. And so he's doing what he's doing through most of this story because he wants to show them who he is. And that he's not just a God who has power, but that he's a God who has restraint, control, precision. That he's, he's the God, you know, the, the Hebrews up until this point, had known him as El Shaddai. And God makes a point of saying that to Moses. You know, your, your forefathers knew me as, as El Shaddai, but now they're going to know me as Yahweh. They're going to know me as, as even greater than that. But El Shaddai, the Jewish sages teach that that's a contraction of a sentence, Hebrew sentence, that means it's the God who knows how to say to his world, enough. That he's the God that sets the boundaries. He knows he can let things grow. And the idea is that when God created the heavens and the earth, like it was just expanding, expanding, like multiplying upon multiplying as it just stretching out the universe. And God knew exactly at the right point to say, okay, stop. No bigger. This is it. These are the boundaries of the heavens and the earth. That he knows when to rein things and he has control. He doesn't just unleash a chaotic 
powerful creation, but he has full control and knows exactly how to restrain things so that balance is maintained, so that order is maintained. That's who the God of Israel is. And he wants the Egyptians to know him and to know that he's not just a force of nature, that he's, he's so much bigger than that, that he's a God that you can have relationship with. That's why when Moses struggles to at the burning bush, to like, God, how am I going to explain who you are to these Hebrew slaves? Like, who should I, what should I say your name is, right? And it's not about labels. It's not about what do you call God. It's about what's your identity? Who are you exactly? And how does a God who is beyond space and time, because these are constructs that he's made himself, communicate what he is, right? And so that's why he gives this really like, what we would see is unhelpful, I am that which I am, right? Like, he's saying, but what he's saying with that, there's nothing, you have nothing that you can compare to me. Because everything that you know, everything that you, you, you can touch, smell, taste, see, hear, I made all that. I made it, so I'm, I'm so much bigger than all of those things. Like, you can see things about me, but you can't necessarily define me by anything that I've made. But then he immediately says right after that, but you know what? I knew your dad. <laughs> I knew your forefathers. I knew Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They knew me. We have a relationship. And so even though it seems like I'm so transcendent, like you can't, how can you even wrap your head around what I am? God says at the same time, I'm a personal God and I'm a God you can walk in relationship with. If you could trust me. And that's, that's the message that Moses takes back to Egypt to announce, hey, our God, our God's heard our cry. He's responding. But he's responding by setting his people free while at the same time trying to reform the persecutors and trying to get them in on the story and trying to show patiently. The reason why there's so many plagues is because of the patience and mercy of God. And watch and see, like, for the first seven there is like no needless loss of human life at all, like of any of the Egyptians. It's not comfortable, and the heat keeps getting turned up. Life keeps getting more difficult for them. But all the way up until the seventh plague, there's no, there's no reason any Egyptian needs to die because God's, God's building a message because he's showing with one plague after another, and all of these things would have been, you know, particular powers, particular gods had dominion over these various areas. And so when, you know, the Nile turns weird, well, they can say, well, it's not the Hebrew God. It's just the God of the Niles upset with us. Not a big deal. Well, then, okay, well, the God of the Nile and the God of the frogs, they've teamed up and they're both angry at us. Okay, the God of the Nile and the God of the frogs and the God of the lice, that's really weird. Why, those guys have never teamed up before. And, you know, and it starts getting more and more outlandish to believe that these is just, this is just the chaotic powers of the world conspiring together to give Pharaoh and Egypt a hard time and looking more and more like there is just one God that has control over all of it. And the reason why the seventh is like the, the final nail on the coffin that there is only one true creator God who made the heavens and the earth is because the seventh is the hail and that's the one that could potentially be life-threatening. And so God lets the Egyptian know, hey, I'm going to be sending hail next so you might want to go inside because I don't actually want to kill you because I love you. But I need you to understand 
I'm not playing around. This is who I am. And I'm not going to let you to continue to walk in ignorance and continue to believe that there's other gods and other powers that are legitimate beings that you can serve and give your lives to. And so he sends hail. And what's special about the hail? It's ice, a ball of ice with fire inside. How many of you have ever seen that? Nobody? You've never seen that? You've never been in a, a, a hailstorm full of fire? Right? Doesn't happen. And what's crazy about that is, is that if you have a pagan worldview, there's absolutely zero explanation for that. Because the fire god and the ice god are not friends. They extinguish each other. They never, ever team up. There's no, there's no team-up stories in the pagan world where the fire god and the ice god decide to be friends. Doesn't happen. So the only explanation for that is that the god of ice and the god of fire are the same god. And that ice and fire both serve his purposes and happily work together when he tells them to. And so that's why it's at the seventh plague that it actually says, like there's an actual moment where Pharaoh himself is on the verge of repentance, which has been the point all along. He confesses with his mouth that he has sinned and that the God of Israel is the only true God, which has been the whole point of any of this. God was trying to bring the Pharaoh of Egypt to repentance so that all of Egypt could repent with him and that maybe this didn't have to be, the story didn't have to have such a bloody end to it. But after acknowledging this and saying, okay, you can go, I'm, I was in the wrong your God is the true God, which means if there is only one God and not a bunch of powers in the world, we're all accountable. We're all accountable to him. And if I'm in the wrong, then I need to obey him. But then he changes his mind again. And now he's without excuse. Now he's without excuse. Now he chooses to strengthen and harden his heart both, it says. And the author of the story, for the first time, says, now Pharaoh has committed sin. All the other stuff he did, the murdering of the firstborn of Israel, like, at no point does the, the author of the Exodus story ever call Pharaoh a sinner until this moment, because now he's without excuse. Now he's no longer ignorant. He's just being stubborn and prideful. And he doesn't, he knows in his heart that the God of Israel is the one true God. And he still says, still not going to serve you. Still going to have my own way, even if I die doing it. And at that part, God says, okay, well, this story's not over yet. And I'm going to make sure, I'm going to send a message through what happens next that the world will never forget. And so then we get three more plagues. We always talk about it as the ten plagues, but really it's the seven plus three. Because God only needed seven to convince Pharaoh of the truth. But the last three was so that the whole world would know after this who God is. And so he gives them three more. First thing he does is he attacks their, their economy completely, sends locusts, destroys the economy. And at this point, like, even his, Pharaoh's advisors are like, uh, like, maybe you want to reconsider this. And Pharaoh's just like, no way. But then, you know, you could tell, like, he's trying to find some way to get out of it and save his pride and so somebody, the text doesn't tell us who, but it probably was the Pharaoh's servants who are like upset now, like bring Aaron and Moses back to Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh's like, well, I might let you go, but like, who are you thinking of taking? 
And so he's trying to like barter, trying to give some way he can save face. Like maybe you just, you know, take part of the people and we'll keep some of them here, right? We'll have a compromise. But at this point, God's not having it. And so Moses isn't having it. And Moses is like, we're taking everybody and all our animals too. And so then, you know, Pharaoh's like, well, forget it because his pride won't let him. So they get that. Then after that, they get darkness, the spiritual darkness over the land. And Israelites are just fine walking in the light. All, none of Egypt can see. And again, there's some more bartering. And the Pharaoh comes back and he's like, well, how, I'll make you a deal, Moses. Um, you can take all the people, but leave the animals. And you're like, you know, again, just trying to save his pride, right? Like, come on. Like, so that he looks like he accomplished something. He can say to his people, sorry, I destroyed our economy, but at least there's beef on the menu. But instead, Moses looks in the face of this mighty king and says, no, we're taking all the people, taking all the kids, taking all our animals, and actually, we know we're going to have to offer sacrifices to God, and who knows how many animals he's going to want. We won't know until we get there. So we're going to need some of your animals too. We're not going to leave a hoof behind. He actually says that. And so, of course, you know, Pharaoh's just like, oh, no way, I'm not going to humble myself and let you know. You can't go. And so then it brings us to this moment to the Passover night, to tonight. And this is where the author wants us to stop and and reflect on on where we've been and what's actually going on and help us to understand what's about to happen because what's about to happen looks pretty rough, right? Trying to explain this story, you know, to your small children because this was a night of of crying out, of, you know, part of the people in Egypt like had a really nice meal tonight. And the whole rest of the country was wailing over the death of firstborn. And what, what is up with that? And why, why is it that this, this night that ends up being the pivotal night for redemption, for freedom, why, why is it called Passover? It's one of those things we never really talk about. Why is it called Passover? Don't get me started on Easter, but why, why do we call this night Passover? Why not, you know, Redemption Day, Independence Day? I was reading a book by uh, Rabbi um, uh, Foreman. And he's like, you know, imagine like, you know, there was like a committee in heaven <laughs> trying to decide like what to call this special feast, you know, and, you know, all these you know, different great ideas, Independence Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, you know, birth, new birthday, whatever. And, you know, an angel in the back is like, oh, we should call it Passover. Get it? Because the Lord's going to pass over the houses of the Israelites. And everyone's like, that's a dumb idea. Like, like, because seriously, like, why? Why is that the thing? And so clearly, and you notice how many times, like, Firstborn gets said just in this little passage. I didn't even read all of chapter 12, but you read the whole thing, like the firstborn, the firstborn, the firstborn is so, so important. And you notice that in the very, very beginning of this story, way back in Exodus 4, one of the very first things that, that Moses says to Pharaoh when he's asking for the people to be let go is God lets Pharaoh know, Israel is my firstborn son. And so if you don't give me my firstborn son, I'm going to take yours. 
So what's that about? What's the firstborn? What's the, what's the big deal about that? We, it, it's harder, you know, 3,000 years removed and on the other side of the planet where we don't have kind of the same family structures and cultural identities. But being the firstborn in this culture, in this time period, was a big deal. And it was more than about, oh, get a double portion of the inheritance, great. No, it was, it was a responsibility. There was a reason why we see in stories like in Genesis where there's brothers that are striving over one another to have that, that title of firstborn. Because with first, being firstborn comes with it a lot of responsibility. Because there's always going to be a generation gap between parents and children. And so, you know, how do you disciple your children well to, to pass on your, your values, your goals, your, your identity into that next generation? And so the idea is that it's the job of the firstborn to walk really close with mom and dad, to understand the, the values, the, the, the perspectives of their parent, and then model that for the other kids to help them, to lead them, to be a servant leader for the rest of the children in their generation. That's what, that's what the firstborn is. It's the bechor in, in Hebrew. And it's an important thing. It's an important job. You know, there's blessing with it, but there's also heavy, heavy responsibility with it. And, and God, in saying to Egypt, hey, Israel's my firstborn, is acknowledging that, that the, the nations of this world are all God's children. But he's looking for one that will walk extra close with him, that will learn and understand his ways and walk in them so that the rest of the children can be connected and, and develop relationship with the Father in heaven, to know him by, by watching others who are just like them modeling what that looks like and invite them in to be that. And that's what God's intention has been from the beginning of this Exodus story until now, is for Israel to be that. But up until this night, this night, they've never had to do anything. They've never had to make a choice to say yes. And this night is about their invitation from God. God's, God's offered it out. I want you to be my firstborn. But will you say yes? And he didn't have any trouble it's not like, you know, he really needed the blood or otherwise he was going to accidentally kill some Israelites. That's not the story because he didn't need any, any indicators to distinguish between Israelite houses and Egyptian houses with any of the other nine plagues. He's perfectly, he has precision, remember. He's not the chaotic gods of the pagan world. He knows exactly where every person, where every animal, where every blade of grass rests. But the, well, the blood was about them saying, I'm in. And in order to be in, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go take a, a lamb or a goat. Animals that are sacred to the Egyptians. They have gods that these animals represent. They're holy. You're not allowed to touch them. You're not allowed to kill them because you anger the gods. And I want you to take one of these symbols of the gods of Egypt. And I want you to tie it up next to your bed for three days. Sorry, four days. And then you're going to take it out right in view of your Egyptian neighbors. You're going to kill it. And you're going to take its blood and you're going to put it all the way around your door. And by the way, the word in the Hebrew says the doorpost and what gets in the ESV, the lintel, it, it can actually be the top of the door and the threshold at the same time. So it's all the way around the door. 
and is sending a message to the rest of Egypt. Inside this house is, you know, Egypt stops at this door. The gods of Egypt and, and their influence and, and acknowledging them stops at this door. There's no, there's no room. This house belongs to the God of Israel. And there's all this symbolism about the oneness, the oneness of God and the oneness that he's calling his people to and all of it, a lamb that's one year old and you can't break it apart. That's the reason why the bones can't be broken, by the way, because it has to be one piece of animal and that everyone's eating, this small group of people is eating from the same one animal, saying that we're all gonna be one, just like God is one. There's all this unity going on, just so much imagery I don't have time to go into, but just trust me, it's in there. And to the Jewish people, they're not, it's not, none of this is, is news to them. They, they understand this so much better than we do. But that's what this statement is making. It's saying, God, we want to be your firstborn. We, we want to be born again. Because can you think of any other time in your life where you exit quickly through a bloody door on the day that we're born for most of us? That's why the blood's all the way around there, so that when they burst out of their homes... At the end of this night, into their freedom. It's not just about freedom. So it's not freedom day. So it's Passover day. Because it's, it's a reminder that we're set free to be God's firstborn people. To remind us that this is our birthday. That it's new life from here on out. And it's who knows what's going to happen. But we're going to follow God. We're going to walk with God. We're going to put our trust in God. And he will be our salvation. And we're going to leave Egypt behind. And it's not even about, because like, you know, how many of the Israelites up until this point, maybe they were dabbling with the worship of the gods of Egypt and all that. Like, none of that matters, because now it's, this is your day to make a choice. And to make a risky choice, because come on, like, think of what it would look like in our day, if it was, if God was speaking, if this was in our story, and we were the nation being judged for our treatment of the foreigner, for the minorities, for the persecuted in our midst. And God said, I want you to make it, whatever you've done before, like, it's gone. But tonight, I want you to make a decision. I want you to do something really radical that's going to show that the gods of this land, you know, money, independence, whatever, whatever it would look like to symbolically say, I'm done with this. This has no more influence or power over my life. I belong to the Yahweh. I want to be his firstborn child. And just to do that in front of everybody, look crazy, scandalous to your neighbors, and be ready to go and run with him wherever he takes you even if it looks like foolishness, even if it looks like zigzagging through the desert, like you don't know where you're going and trusting that you're God, he's enough. So what does it mean to be a Passover people now in light uh, Messiah has come and is, yeah, like I didn't even talk about all the ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of this story. And it's because I don't want to always jump to there so quick that we lose like what the story that he's the fulfillment of. Like we got we to gotta live in the story first and then go and like, wow, how much of this? Like Jesus is the ultimate behor. He's the ultimate. He is the unique firstborn son who models for us what it looks like to walk with our father, to know him, to know his ways and invites us to be, as the apostles write, co-inheritors with him, to be firstborn children too, firstborn sons too. And open the door and invite others and invite others and invite other nations of people from every corner of the planet. Like, you too can come and know the ways of your Father in heaven who loves you and wants relationship with you. Come walk with us and we will show you who he is. And that's what I think it means to be a Passover people. And I hope this week you'll take the time over these next seven days, read the Exodus story. 
Live in it. Take time and like talk to God about it because, oh my gosh, there's so much I think the Lord wants to say to us even 3,000 years removed through this story and, and so many things that when, when you read the Gospels again and like notice how much of this imagery is reused in the life of Jesus because it's just the same story repeated again, but as a man, <laughs> the story in flesh and blood walking around among us and it's so amazing. So there we go. Abba, Abbana, our Father, we love you so much. We are so humbled speechless in the face of your mercy, your grace, your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, we thank you so much that you are so patient, that you pursue even the hearts of wicked kings because it's, it's not your wish that any should perish, but it's your desire that, that every single human being on this planet could, could know you could see you as you are and have the opportunity to submit their life to you. You don't, what I'm so amazed about in this story is that you could have broken Pharaoh and brought him to repentance, but you were unwilling to do so. You even strengthened, you gave him courage at times, even when he was against you because you, you wanted him to, have the, to be set free to make the decision himself to see the truth himself and know and then decide. And you do that for every one of us, God. And I just pray that, oh, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't walk in any, any condemnation or any, any guilt or shame over decisions we've made in the past, God. But we would just be a people of, of, say, right now, today, this night, I say yes to you, God. I want to know you. I want to walk in your ways. And I want as many people around me as possible to have the opportunity to do the same. And so work through us, God. These, these people that we read about were, were human beings, Moses, Aaron, the others, flesh and blood just like us, fallible just like us, and you did mighty things through them. What do you want to do through us today? What nations do you want to turn upside down, to restore justice to through us today, God? Here we are, Lord. We're available for you. We love you, God. We thank you for all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that we get to experience right now in Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen and amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you for coming. I want to uh, give you a verse out of Matthew chapter 13, what just happened to y'all. Uh, Matthew 13, 51. This is my favorite passage. I've told Nostra this before for him. In chapter 13, verse 52, he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law or every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of the house or like the head of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And he expanded, says it this way. Jesus said to them, every teacher of the law, every scribe who has been taught about or has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a house, the owner of a house. He brings out both new things and old things he has saved from his treasure, from his storeroom. Knowledge of the Old Testament provides insight into Jesus' new message of the kingdom of God. And so I just wanted to put a, a little exclamation mark on the end of this teaching here. And I love what 
Nasser said earlier, that sometimes we can read these stories over and over. You can hear and talk again and again, and you can kind of glaze over a little bit because you're like, yeah, I know this. But the scripture says to look unto Jesus, to consider Jesus, Hebrews 3.1. I want you to, to look at Jesus, and that's more than just notice something about this room. Like you could leave here and you could say, I noticed the carpet was blue, but he's saying, I want you to gaze like you would look at maybe a 3D image with all the, the confusion of the picture. And the longer you gaze into that, into that after 20 or 30 seconds, the image pops out. And you see something very unique there that you'd never seen before. But it takes time and it takes patience. And you bring out something old and it brings something new and fresh. So what our brother did, just teaching, just a moment here, just to, just to remember, all of the scriptures testify about who? He says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And so when we take a moment, I love, Nasser's taught this before, when we, when we get to a scripture, you don't have to just hurry through that. You can take a moment and you can just chew on that scripture. You can pause, you can look for Christ in that story. I really wanna encourage you to do that because this type of teaching from the plagues and from what happened with Moses doesn't come from a cursory reading. It comes from, from taking a lot of time in it. And the Lord has so much depth for us as we look in the scriptures. So don't feel like you've got to check off your box that said you read your three and a half chapters to get through your year reading. Do it if the Lord's calling you to that. But please, please, please pause and wait and look for Jesus in the scriptures. And he will reveal to you in a deeper way. I cannot get out of Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 right now. I can't do it. I'm stuck there. I just keep seeing Jesus who was the creator of all things. Hebrews 1, first few verses. And he's the sustainer of all things. And Jesus is the heir of all things. I can't get out of that. What does that mean? This Jesus, my vision, I've been praying it over and over and I prayed it tonight. My vision's so small of Jesus. I have such a small perception of who he really is. Lord, open my eyes to understand who Jesus is, this ruling and reigning king. And he'll do that. And one verse, one word can open our eyes to do it. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together if you would, guys. Lord Jesus, I pray again, as Nasser said, a blessing over these people. I pray, Father, for wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you this week. We thank you for this Passover night. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your blood, you passed over our sins and now we enter in to a new realm, the kingdom of the heavens now. We thank you for the destiny we have as your inheritance, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we celebrate the resurrection coming this next week, I, Lord, Lord, I pray pray, just prepare our hearts for that, Lord. I thank you for this transition season that's happening, even in the natural, Lord, such a season of transition, but especially in the spiritual, open our eyes, open our ears, Lord, that we could discern it, Lord, and stay in step with you. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would quicken us to understand what you're doing in the earth in this day. I pray that we would not be caught off guard. Holy Spirit, awaken us so that we would not be caught off guard. I pray, Lord, I thank you for the divine separation 
separation that's happening between the wheat and the chaff. I pray, awaken us that it would not be business as usual, God. Open our eyes, Lord, to see what you're doing and what you're saying. We want to be on board with that. We want to be a part of the exodus out of this world from Egypt. We want to plunder the Egyptians as they did there, Lord. We want all the treasures to go to you, Jesus. We just want to do what you're saying, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us together with one heart and one mind to apprehend you, to know you more deeply, Lord Jesus. So bless these precious brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray that the word would just dwell in them richly this week and you would water the seeds that have been planted even this night. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen.